Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Um, my name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here, and we are uh, now, uh, during our, our gathering together, this is the, the point at which we move in uh, to, to, to focus our attention on God's Word, to turn our attention to the Bible, and, and there's a, a really important reason for that. It's because we believe as a church that to get to God, we have to get to God's Son. We have to get to know God's Son, and that we get to know God's Son through God's Word, which is why every Sunday we devote this time to turning our attention not to the latest headline or, or the latest cultural issue going on, but to, to hearing from God. And we're going to do that today as we wrap up our series, The Gospel According to Jonah, in which we've not only been turning to God's Word, but in the process have been looking at a number of principles of how to be better readers of God's Word, and then have been putting those principles to work in this little book. And last week, we, we brought together all of what we had, have been looking at up until that point with, with a principle called main idea and intended response. Seeing that if we're going to read a, a book like Jonah rightly, the end game isn't about picking it apart and, and taking taking some verse out of it as, as if it's some saying in a fortune cookie or some magic spell. But instead, the end game is, is understanding the whole and specifically what the author is saying about the topic the author is addressing, the main idea, and then what the author wants us to do about it, its intended response. So for Jonah, we, we said that, that this is a story about God's heart, God's heart for his godless prophet and for his godless people afterward, that, that God's godless prophet or God's godless people would have God's heart for this godless world. Because it's the same heart God has for his godless people to begin with. That was the, the main idea and intended response of this book. So you might ask, what then is left to say? Nine, ten weeks in this, what left could there be to say? Because we've really looked at this book from beginning to end. We've dug in into in, the whole of it. So in one sense, there's nothing left. We've seen it all. But in another sense, there's everything left. Because we haven't yet looked at how the, the story of this little book fits into the story of God's big book. Or how, as part of that big book, the story of Jonah points forward to the story of Jesus. And that's what this last principle called biblical theology is all about. How the little stories make up one big story. 
and how that big story is all about Jesus. But before we jump in, we're going to jump into the whole of Jonah once again. Before we jump in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to the end of this journey, at the end of this journey with Jonah. I pray that especially today, we would see through this godless prophet your God in the flesh, son. That seeing how far Jonah went to to run from your will, we would marvel at how far Jesus went to fulfill it. And that we would reflect in our own lives a measure of what we've experienced in him. And we ask all such things in his strong name. Amen. When my wife, Catherine, is not here today, I get to tell stories of her when she doesn't show up. When my wife, uh, Catherine, was uh, still a teenager, a little known fact, she used to travel around with a chalk artist named Esther Fry. And Esther was pushing 90 at the time, but was still then and had been for some 75 years traveling through the country, traversing the globe to tell stories of the Bible with just a few pieces of chalk. How many of you have experienced this? This this is a dying art. How many have experienced chalk art? Yeah? Okay, you've dated yourself. <laughs> uh, Esther um, was, was one of the originals. Esther began as a, a senior in high school when, when our nation was still reeling from the Great Depression. She ended, um, began by digging up potatoes to pay for her chalk supplies. And, and, and then she continued through World War II and through the social revolutions of the 60s and the 70s, of the 80s and the 90s, to when Catherine finally caught up with her when she was still going strong and got to know her in her old widowed age. And Kath would travel around with her, carrying her easels and her erasers and setting them up for Esther, who was at that point too frail to do it herself. And Catherine, if you ask her about it, will tell you that she especially remembers Esther's hands. Frail, old, worn out hands that that could barely grip the the steering wheel as they, they drove from place to place. But hands that would come alive when Esther took the the front of whatever venue she was at to, to, to put the Bible into story form. Come alive at the, the telling of the stories of the Bible. The highlight of those stories, though, wasn't ever the picture that you saw Esther draw, though but the picture that you didn't see her draw behind it. 
She would draw these magnificent, um, these magnificent depictions uh, of Moses or Mount Carmel, of Joshua or Jonah. But at the end of every story, she had a light that she would flip. And once the light went on through the picture, you would finally see Jesus. Because every story led to Jesus. Because every story is supposed to lead to Jesus. Every story was written to lead to Jesus. Like any good Bible story, there was always Jesus. And that's what this principle called biblical theology is all about. It's about flipping the light on the stories of the Bible, to see how they're all about Jesus. And before we, we see that in Jonah, before we take our time today to, to walk through Jonah, if you have a bulletin, take out this insert. Let me first just explain that this thing called biblical theology is a way of looking at the Bible. It's about constructing your, your, your frame of reference, how you see God and the things of God from the Bible. It's a way of looking at the Bible, a way of, of looking at the Bible so that it helps you see first the one overarching story of the Bible. And then second, how each individual part of the Bible fits into that bigger picture. And ultimately points to Jesus because he's the one the Bible is ultimately about. So again, it's a way of looking at the Bible that helps us see the overarching story of the Bible so we can second then see how some part of the Bible leads to Jesus. And if that's, if that's news to you, if you haven't been around a bit or, or you haven't been able to grasp that or that somehow always struck you as funny, I, I, I would just tell you that maybe one of the best ways to wrap your head around this is to pick up one of these children's Bibles. I brought three. There's a, there's a fourth that, um, that I would say. Uh, one of these children's Bibles. Kevin DeYoung's The Biggest Story. I love, the, I love the subtitle to this. How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. Kevin DeYoung's The, the Biggest Story. Or there's Marty Mikowski's The Gospel Story Bible. We were using this curriculum in Sunday school um, a couple years ago. Or then there's, there's everyone's favorite, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible, where every story whispers Jesus' name. If you're having a hard time catching the, the overarching story of the Bible, or every piece of the Bible fits together into a single story, this is probably the best way for you to grasp that. And this is honestly what, this is what seminary professors now are suggesting to guys and girls who are, who are having trouble walking through that concept. And even if you don't have kids around, this is the perfect time of year to do this. Go buy yourself one of these books, go read it over the next month, then wrap it up and give it to somebody for Christmas because it's, it's probably the best thing you can give them and it's probably the best thing you could do for yourself. You're having trouble, again, all as a way of seeing that there's one overarching story of the Bible and that that story's only and ultimately about Jesus. 
to first. Look, look back and see the development of that overarching story up into whatever point in the Bible you're looking at. And to then second, flip the light on and see that, how that individual part is connected to the center of that story, to God's work to save God's world through the work of God's Son. It's a phenomenal, life-changing experience when you can finally see that all of history and all of history that's been written about in the Bible is telling one single, solitary story that is all about God's Son. Whether you're in the, the Old Testament where everything points to Jesus, or, or in the New Testament that explains Jesus, explains the significance of his, his coming to, to die and rise again, and then, and then anticipates the return. Again, so you can know where you are in that story and what you're looking at, what it has to do with Jesus. That's what they call biblical theology. And it's, it's a key part of, of even being a Christian because if you don't get this, you will sway from Christianity into some other form of religion. Some other form where, where you become the main character of the story rather than God. Where you take the place of Jesus, which is no longer the Christian faith. So, for us in this series, we're in the Old Testament, and the question that we want to ask now is, what about Jonah? What about Jonah? How does the story of this little book fit into the story of God's big book up into this point? And how, as part of that big book, does the story of Jonah point forward to the story of Jesus? And here, I just want to give a word of caution that those of us who, who start to see this, those of us who, who become convinced of this, those of us who, who latch on to this idea, that, that everything in the Bible points to Jesus or points back to Jesus, we're the ones that are sometimes at the greatest risk of short-circuiting the story because we want to get to Jesus. So, for Jonah, you might say, Jonah had a boat. Jesus had a boat. Jonah was asleep in the boat. Jesus was asleep in the boat. Jonah and Jesus had boats. Well, what do you do with that then? Well, if you're in a boat and don't want to go down with the boat, make sure you're in Jesus' boat. And if you happen to be in a boat with a guy named Jonah, throw him out and get into Jesus' boat. Let's pray. Sometimes, sometimes what seems, though, like the most direct route to Jesus isn't the best route to Jesus. And that's, that's what honing this skill is about. Because this isn't as much a where's Waldo as it is a magic eye. You remember Where's Waldo? What was the point of Where's Waldo? Quick as you can, find the guy, red hat, white stripes, white shirt, red stripes, find the guy, 
get on to the next page, right? That's not what this is, though. It's not find Jesus wherever you think you can and then move on. It's more like a magic eye, right? You have to stare at it until Jesus comes off the page, until the whole thing makes sense as one picture. It's not so much a where's Waldo as it is a magic eye. All you're trying to do is to, is to stare at this long enough until the whole, the light turns on the whole, and you finally see Jesus who was always there. So before looking at, uh, for, for how a story like Jonah points forward to the story of Jesus, look first at how a story like Jonah develops the story of the Bible. So it's kind of interesting, right? Because before you look forward, it's better to look back, right? Where is this picking up on the story God was already writing? Before you look for Jesus, look for how it develops the story of the Bible up until that point. And, and a good place to start is conveniently with that book's main idea and intended response. That's what the book is all about. That's why you do this usually after the fact. Once you know what the book was about, what it was when it was written to those people it was first written to, then you can move and, and ask, how does the main idea of this particular book develop the story of God's big book? What, what theme or themes does it pick up on? And where else in the Bible have I seen those themes before? So first, what is the main idea of Jonah? What is it? God's heart for God's prophet, God's people, that, that God's people would have God's heart for this godless world, right? That's the, the thread that unites the whole thing from beginning to end. Now, this next part may be a bit trickier, especially if you're not as familiar with the Bible as a whole. But where else in the Bible did those themes converge? God's heart for this godless world. God's heart for God's people. Well, maybe most explicitly in the calling of a guy named Abraham. You remember? That's where this sort of began, right? Where, where God first chooses the people to, to whom Jonah belonged. Not just that, that they might be blessed, but that the world would be blessed through them. God's heart for God's people, that, that God's people would have God's heart for God's world. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God called a guy named Abraham to, to leave his country and his kindred because God was going to make of him a, a great nation. But bless him so that he would be a blessing. That in him, you remember the words? All the families of the earth would be blessed. That's where this all begins. Really, because God at that point is still trying to, to, to fix a problem that all people had. 
This was the, the next answer. The flood didn't do it. God proved the point. I can't just wipe it clean and start over again. You guys are infected, right? It's not done that way. It can't be done that way. So what we're going to do is we're going to call a people so that through the people, all humanity might be blessed. And it doesn't stop there. It actually develops further on. You get hints and, 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 and little, little reminders of it along the way. One of the next points that you, you hear of it is when, when that people finally became a nation and they were brought by that God to the side of a mountain. And they were going to be made at that mountain God's people. And what does God say? If you obey me and follow my statutes, what? I will make of you a kingdom of priests, which spoke not only to the uniqueness of their relationship with God, but to the uniqueness of their role. That they, for all of mankind, would play the mediatorial role of taking that relationship and allowing the world to meet their God. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. That's why that language is picked up in the New Testament in that way. It was not just for themselves. It was for the world around them. Now, you know what happens, though. You know how it goes. I remember the first time my parents left my, my older sister in charge when, when they went out on a date for, for, for what they called the, the good of the family. It wasn't good for me, though. There was my sister with her sleeve of Oreos, her jug of milk, and the rest of us sent to bed so she could watch who knows what. Until my dad showed up. And reminded her, right, not only of the uniqueness of her relationship being the, the eldest child, but of the uniqueness of her role. That it wasn't just for the good of her, it was for the good of the family. And as far as God's reminder for God's people, it's Jonah. That's what this book is. It's not just telling again something they already know or knew. It's reminding them of something they forgot. Because they started to think that it was all about them when it never was. So this is God's reminder to God's people that this wasn't just about them. As it picks up and platforms this thread that God's people were meant to have God's heart for God's godless world. Because they were, they were taken out of that world for that world. To bless that world. A thread that, that if you, you pull on it going forward, leads you through Jonah and straight to Christ. To the work of God's Son. Where God's Son would step in for God's people and carry out God's heart for both them and this godless world. And the point is this. At least in the Old Testament, once we see how the story of a little book like this develops the story of God's big book, picking up 
the past, pointing forward to the future, that rather than leave us just looking for the closest parallel to Jesus, Jesus had a boat, Jonah had a boat, rather than just leave us looking for the closest parallel, it helps us see how a story like Jonah most naturally leads to Jesus. It's like if you look on the sheet, thinking of the Bible as a map with with a city at the center of it, that, that not all roads lead directly to, but all roads do eventually link up to a highway that goes right in. 290 brings you right to Buckingham Fountain, right? Not all roads will get you there. Some roads will get you there, but you don't really want to take them. You don't want to take 64 all the way into the city. It's a long trip, right? Even though you think it's the most direct one, right? But it does. There are links to to other highways that that bring you to to the main themes of a book, the main ideas of a book that that puts you on a pathway that's right to Buckingham Fountain. And you want to make sure that you're taking the roads, right? Not just jumping the curb or, you know, you see the road and you just jump the fence onto the road if you have experiences like me doing that. It's like a map, and it, it helps us get there, that, that everything Jonah left wanting, if you go this direction, you see that Jesus is the one who fulfilled it up. That God's heart was never so much displayed as it was in Jesus. Never so much displayed, and that Jesus isn't just a better Jonah, but a completely different league of Jonah. That rather than feel like like you have to force Jonah, like so many do, force Jonah into some more positive light because that would give you a better point of contact, that all of a sudden we see that Jonah wasn't what Jonah needed, that Jonah didn't do what Jonah should have because Jonah was looking forward to Jesus. That rather than that cast Jonah in a better light, leaving him in the darkness, leaving us in the darkness when it comes to such things. Let's the light turn on for Jesus and let's him shine all the brighter for all that he's worth because he's so worth it. Again, because Jesus did what Jonah didn't. Jonah didn't. Jesus did. And we can really trace that through the whole book. Turn to chapter 1. Look at this. Makes more sense of Jonah's boat, too. Look at chapter 1, where Jonah runs from God's heart when Jesus will someday show up to fulfill God's heart. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, telling him to go to Nineveh. He, He runs five times as far in the opposite direction. In verse 3, we're told that that because of the word of the Lord, Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord. Yet when Jesus shows up, he shows up as God's word to be God's presence. He doesn't leave God's presence to get away from God's word. As God's word, he leaves God's presence in heaven to bring God's presence to earth. 
Not for his own sake, but for whose? For ours. And for this world who needs him so much. Jonah goes down, down, down into the ship and falls asleep because he doesn't care about anybody else. Even when the storm comes, he doesn't care enough in verse 6 to to call out to his God like he's asked. Even though in verse 9 he'll say that his God is the God who made the sea and the dry land. Now Jesus will fall asleep in, in a boat too. And the ones with Jesus will, will come to a very similar conclusion that like Jonah, he must not care until Jesus. The impression you get by the end of the, the, the story until Jesus is, proves that it's not that he doesn't care, but that the winds and the waves are under his control. And that whatever storm we bring on ourselves, he'll take care of it when the time comes. At the end of it, Jonah would rather die than risk his life for others. Whether for those godless sailors or for that godless Nineveh. He'd rather sink to the bottom of the sea. Yet Jesus will not only risk his life, but give it up. And where Jonah won't even walk the plank, but in the midst of running away, makes the sailors that he put at risk throw him overboard. Jesus will come of his own initiative. At his own risk. And carry his own cross. After the sea calms, both, both those with, with Jonah and those with Jesus have very similar reactions. We're told those that, that are left in the boats are even more afraid than when they began. For those who threw Jonah in, apparently because this God who made heaven and earth had demanded Jonah's life and very well could demand theirs. But those with Jesus are apparently scared stiff because the God who made heaven and earth, the God who made the seas and dry land, was in that boat with them. Was in that boat with them. Yet rather than demand their lives, offered them his own. So in Jonah, we have a a man unwillingly thrown into the heart of the sea, running from God and God's Word. While in Jesus, we have a a God-made man willingly thrown into the heart of the earth in fulfillment as God's Word. Jesus would do what Jonah didn't. Jonah is spared from death in his watery grave while Jesus embraces death in his watery earthly tomb. Yet the contrast continues through chapter 2 with what's probably best compared with Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Because in Jonah's prayer, we see how much he wants to change God's heart 
for the godless. When all Jesus wants is to carry it out. Before Jesus was three days in the tomb, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Jonah didn't pray till three days were up. And when he gets around to praying, it doesn't sound anything like that. It's more like not your will be done, but mine. And by the end, he, he's reminding God that those who, who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope, God, of steadfast love. But as for me, God, I'll sacrifice to you and pay what I vow very much on my own terms, God. What a contrast, though, with Jesus and how he lived and how he prayed because Jesus would do what Jonah didn't. And third, with how Jesus preached. Jonah's not all that prominent in chapter 3. He sort of disappears from the scene after the first couple of verses. But what we see there, it's enough. He goes to Nineveh, apparently not much more willing than before. Walks into the city with his five-word sermon, 40 days, and then the end. Drops the mic and walks out. Because Jonah's so bent on running from God's heart and wishing he could change God's heart that even in his preaching, he still is rejecting God's heart. I mean, Jonah doesn't even fake it, right? There's not even a hint here. There's not even like a dot, 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 God may save you. He might expend some measure of mercy, might extend some measure of grace, some measure of forgiveness. Nothing. 40 days and that's it. Meanwhile, Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's ran through with nails. Thorns in his head, whipped on his back, beaten beyond recognition. About to have a spear thrust up his side. Not to mention the weight of hell pressed down on his heart. And yet he so accepts God's heart for this godless world that he says about the people who hung him there, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Don't know what they do? They arrested you without cause. They tried you without due process. They called for your crucifixion and then beat you for good measure. I have a two-year-old daughter. She picks up crayons often and draws on the walls. She knows what she's doing. Don't know what they do? And yet Jesus so embraces God's heart for this godless world that he prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. They don't get it. They don't understand what they're doing and who they're doing it to. And the contrast goes all the way through to chapter 4. 
where Jonah says that he would stand against God's heart all the way to the grave. If the sailors couldn't kill me, you do it. That he would rather die than see others live. Where Jesus would someday die to provide for us our only way to live. God asked Jonah, should not I pity the city? Thank God that he didn't have to ask the same of Jesus. He didn't have to pose the question because Jesus pitied it for him. Because Jesus would do what Jonah never did and would display more than ever before God's heart for this godless world. And God's heart for that godless prophet. That God's people called out of that godless world and who've experienced God's heart for the godless in Jesus would finally know and share and be empowered to reflect God's heart in theirs. Because Jesus did what Jonah didn't. Because Jesus is the one Jonah left a hole for. Because this is the gospel according to Jonah. To see the book, not only for what it is, but to see it within God's bigger book and how it all points to where it all points and always points to Jesus. Let me leave you then with one last time, three encouragements at the end of this series of looking at this book and this man and the man that he pointed to. Three encouragements to remember Jesus, to hang on to Jesus, and to reflect in your heart the heart of Jesus. First, to remember Jesus. As you read God's word is what I'm particularly referring to. That, that God's Word, to remember that God's Word is ultimately a story about God's Son. So read the Bible as a single story with, with Jesus at the center of it. After his resurrection, Jesus would say on a, on a road walking with two of his disciples, he would tell them, why he had to die and rise again because he would say everything in the law and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. The law, that's the five books of Moses. The prophets, which for a Jew included Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve of which Jonah is one. And then the Psalms, which was sort of their catch-all for everything else. That all of it 
had to be fulfilled, which meant Jesus had to die and rise again. So read this book as you're reading this book, especially the Old Testament, because that's where we sometimes lose sight of Jesus the most. As you're reading this, don't forget about Jesus because he's the one it's all about. Remember Jesus. Second, hang on to Jesus because there's really no one else to hang on to. I love how one of these story Bibles puts it. It says this, Some people think the Bible is a book of rules. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes. But in fact, the Bible is really a story about one hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. A brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. Like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life in which every page whispers his name. And for good reason, for good reason, because it's all about him, because there's no one else to hang on to, right? There is no one else. Remember Jesus. Hang on to Jesus. There is no one else. There's no one else who's going to save you from the lion's den. There's no one else who's going to secure you in the furnace. There's no one else who's going to fight the giant for you. There's no one else who's going to storm the castle gates or bring down the castle walls. There's no one else who's going to take you across the sea, save you from Pharaoh. There's no one else who's going to crush the serpent's head or slay the dragon on your behalf. Hang on to Jesus because it's a story about Jesus. And lastly, reflect in your heart the heart of Jesus. Reflect in your love, in what you love, the love that you've been shown in Jesus. The way we've started to put it as a church is that we would be a body who reflects the the love that God's had for us in Jesus in our love for Jesus, our devotion, our character and conduct are constantly bringing ourselves before the word that's about Jesus to submit ourselves under Jesus. Our love for Jesus. But not stopping there, our love for Jesus' people. That we would do that bound together with one another, committing ourselves to this body or wherever the Lord would lead us. That we would be one bearing each other's burdens, walking alongside each other, sacrificing on each other's behalves, that those who have will support those who have not, that those who are struggling will find strength in those who happen to be standing, that those who have fallen will find a hand in those who are yet up. Our love for Jesus, our love for Jesus' followers, and our love for this world that Jesus loved so much. 
that we would extend in the mercy and grace, in the, in the affection, the, the pity for this world, the pity we've experienced in Jesus, that we would go out of our way, throw ourselves off the boat on behalf of others, that we would find those who are in need of saving and be the instrument as far as God's grace would take it to do exactly that. To tell and retell the story again because this is the hope of the world we were once a part of. A story about none other than the one whose heart we reflect in our own. None other than the only one there is to hang on to. None other than the one we ought to remember when we read in and out of it or read it to our kids or with our spouses or in the quiet of our mornings. That it's a story about Jesus, thank God, and nothing less. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this journey with Jonah. I thank you for the weeks of being able to bed down and dig in. I pray that, that, that as much as we've looked at this little book, you would continue to grow our abilities to read your big book, to, to, to come ever more with, with an understanding and a, and a perspective that is, that is shaped under the lordship of your Son, that, that we come to find him and find him right. that we would therefore have our lives changed by him. That we would serve under him. And that in us he would be honored as we love him, as we love each other, and as we love this world that he loves so much. To the glory of him alone. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.